When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with the first of what I hope will be a pretty fun series of episodes, which I'm calling listener episodes or listener sodes because listener episodes takes too long to say. Here I am joined by Gabe, a longtime listener of the show who reached out and was interested in doing an episode with us on nuclear energy and uh, specifically their Chernobyl disaster. Gabe, how's it going? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, no problem. Thanks for volunteering for this. You're like my first guinea pig. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully hopefully it goes well and you can avoid most of the, uh, the, the, the what's the word, the uh, job dangers that most first guinea pigs go through. So well, we'll... If, if anything goes wrong, you can blame it on me. Perfect. That's the best thing about these kinds of episodes. <laughs> All right. So today we'll be talking about kind of the history of nuclear power. Uh, we're talking a little bit about, you know, the way that these technologies developed, where they are today, and also talking a bit about the Chernobyl disaster. So uh, should be a lot of fun. So, Jake, roll the tape. Jake will roll the tape. I can hear the theme song in my Yeah, head. I know, right? So, so <laughs> like, oh man, that was a good uh, that was a good decision on my part when we started the started the podcast. That and the logo, those were like my only two really good decisions so far, I'd say. Um, that's how I found it. I was, I was just looking stuff up. I'm like, that's a really cool logo. Right? It's sweet, man. I'm telling you, Carrie Shaheen killing it on logos. All right. All right. So we were kind of First off, Gabe, what made you want to do an episode like this? Well, uh, I'm very interested in nuclear energy. Uh, I'm very pro-nuclear power plants. Um, I, I don't like using coal energy for everything because it's you know polluting our planet, the, thing, the place that we live. Sure. Um, I, I don't really know how it got started. Uh, I've, I've always had a thing for figuring out how things work, so – uh, specific, but specifically in like energy development. So I just, I got into it one day and I just went down the rabbit hole and it's now it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Cool, man. Yeah. It's funny, right? When I, when I first got into, um, when I first got into school and I was looking at chemical engineering, one of the things that I was really interested in doing was uh, nuclear energy work, you know, and even doing some, even doing research, what's the word, even doing research in nuclear energy, like you know, so some of the materials that I worked with are actually used as uh, shielding for nuclear reactors or are used to clean up radioactive waste. So the reason that they're used is because the materials uh, self-heal, right? So in other words, imagine you have, I mean, we're going to get into all this in the episode, so we can, <laughs> we can wait like 10 minutes until we kind of do some of the background history. But I'm totally with you, right? Nuclear energy has always been something I'm really interested in. It is, it's seemingly a really great opportunity and a really great option for energy generation, 
But at the same time, things like the Chernobyl disaster, the Fukushima disaster, a Three Mile Island, those things are really scary. And, you know, for the public, it's, it, it always seems like the trade-off is between, you know, efficient, clean energy and safety. But that's not really the case, you know. Um, the challenge, though, is that nuclear energy appears from the outside. You know, it's kind of it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you're like, well, like someone who I, I kind of I liken it to somebody who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day saying they don't want to go skydiving because it's too dangerous. <laughs> you know, like the instantaneous threat of skydiving is minuscule comparatively to the continuous long term negative threat of smoking. You know, and it's kind of that way with coal energy versus nuclear energy, coal energy over, you know, if a, if a disaster occurs at a coal power plant, it's not going to be anywhere near the same scale of disaster that'll happen at a nuclear plant. But over time, the coal, you know, the coal power plant just existing is like multiple disasters continuously, you know, long term chain smoking. Exactly. It's long term chain smoking. So it really makes a big difference. So. Anyways, all right, so let's let's start going through some of this history here. So the beginning of fission started with a German scientist named Otto Hahn. It was during 1920s, I believe. Okay. Um, he was experimenting with neutron bombardment, which sounds specific, but as I understand in chemistry, that's like a pretty common way to uh, like dissect bigger elements. Yeah, so it's he, yeah, it's a it's not it's not an un. So let's let's back up a little bit first, right? The first really discovery of radioactivity, which is the underlying idea or the underlying science behind fission, was Marie Curie. And so she discovered that uh, elements, super heavy elements, spontaneously decayed. And when they decayed, they released heat and they seemed to release other particles. And so from that, you know, we started looking at, well, what if we shoot particles at other things? And neutrons were a very popular element to, or a popular, you know, nuclei, atomic nuclei to do that with because they were pretty easy to generate. And um, they, they were neutral. They weren't positive or negative. So they seemed, you know, it was more interesting to shoot the neutron at things because you could see again, yeah, kind of like a physical effect. And so, yeah, so what, what actually happens is... Um, what actually happens when something is shot at, like when a neutron is shot at an element or a piece of metal or something, a piece of material, essentially what happens is called nuclear knock-on or, you know, a knock-on effect. And it's very similar to imagine you're at a billiards table and you shoot the cue ball and it hits that first ball. And then the momentum from that, from that first interaction gets transported through the rest of the balls and they all, they all move. You can I use cut. that analogy every time I try to explain this. To yeah, someone. it's it's a really good analogy, right? You can, yeah. you know, it's essentially the same thing. It's the neutron will hit a, an atom in the crystal lattice or on the surface of the material or whatever, and then that will cause momentum to shift or, you know, energy to be transferred, and then energy transfers uh, through the other material. And so at a certain level, like, that's why thickness is important when it comes to nuclear shielding, because... For some things, you're just trying to mitigate that knock-on effect, whereas for other elements like, say, lead, 
it's so dense that the knock-on effect actually doesn't have a big, it, it has an effect, but it's much less than say something lighter like iron. Anyway, so yeah, so Otto Hahn was, was shooting neutrons um, at uranium, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he figured out that it split pretty much, not directly in half, it was about 40% of what uranium is, but it's like, it's like if you cut a piece of Parmesan cheese in half, you'll you'll split it in half but you'll have pieces that crumble off mm -hmm. um and over the years people started testing this on more and more things and uh they found that at the time uranium was the most easily fissionable now i, I was actually going to ask you i know t uh when you mine uranium like just in a mine uh uranium 238 is the most common isotope mm -hmm. um and 235 consists of 0.72 percent of that which that's what's actually the enriched part of it, but what is it about this, the three less neutrons that makes it more fissionable than the 238? Yeah, so, um, so, okay, there is an idea out there, um, there's an idea out there of what's known as a magic number. Now, the magic numbers mean different, can mean different things, right? There's different magic numbers. One of them is the idea of the, uh, what's known as the F factor, which is the ratio of protons to neutrons. So the neutron mm -hmm. to proton ratio, often, also often shown by a Z. So that is a, um, what's the word? That's a very important uh, factor that we're looking at here. So the idea is that if you, if you plotted, right, a graph of the number of neutrons versus the number of protons, and then looked at whether or not an element was stable or if it underwent some kind of nuclear decay, you would find that stable nuclei follow that, that kind of one-to-one -one ratio of for every one neutron, you have one proton, basically all the way up until you start hitting around 14, right? So carbon. Okay. Past, pa essentially past carbon, that ratio of the number of neutrons to protons goes up a little bit. All right. So for instance, at proton number 50, the number of neutrons you need to basically make something stable is around say, you know, 68, 67. So this factor of the number of neutrons to protons is a pretty good indicator of stability, but a better indicator, a better indicate indicator <laughs> is what are known as the magic numbers. So just like you can imagine in, in electrons, there are an octet, there's the octet rule, right? Do you remember what the octet rule is from chemistry? Yes. All right. Bit. So for listeners that don't remember it, essentially the octet rule means that in an in a element, if there are eight electrons in the outer valence shell, which is the the highest energy shell of a, of an element, um, it'll be stable. It will not undergo reaction. And so that's why we have things like say the noble gases like neon, xenon, radon. Those don't really react with anything else because they have eight valence electrons. The same thing is true for protons and neutrons and neutrons. It turns out there are special numbers that um, seem to indicate stability. Right now, in some cases you'll have one of them. And in some cases you'll have both, which would be called double magic numbers. That's where they are stable for both the protons and the neutrons. So for protons, those numbers are two protons, eight 
20, 28, 50, 82, and 114. For neutrons, it's 2, 8, 20, 28, 50, 82, 126, and 184. When did people figure this out? That is actually a really good question. This was starting to be figured out around essentially... Um, this was started to be figured out around the time of the atomic bomb tests. Like uh Manhattan project. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, so that was really where these things started to be. Uh, what's the word? That is where these things really started to be looked at specifically. So um, what this meant was that the closer you get to those magic numbers, the, uh, the better or the more stable your thing will be. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, so the first person actually, the first person actually, uh, what's the word? The first person to coin the term magic numbers was Eugene Wigner, who is a, uh, or Wigner, I guess I should say, not Wigner, he was Hungarian, <laughs> so Wigner was the way he would have said it, um, who was a theoretical physicist. So he actually won the Nobel Prize in 1963 um, for the uh, theory of these kinds of, you know, the way that the atomic nucleus exist, exists, right? Now, uh, so what this means, uh, and it actually kind of matters even further, right? Because there's also this idea that the a combination of an even, uh, like if you have an even number and then an even number of protons and neutrons, that tends to make stable isotopes. If you have an even proton number, but an odd neutron number, that tends to make, again, some kind of sort of even numbers but the worst the worst case is odd odd if you have an odd number of protons and an odd number of neutrons you have very few stable isotopes does that make sense do, to you yeah no that's uh i was gonna ask do they take that in account with um like let's say particle accelerators when they're making synthetic elements that are yeah, much absolutely they do right they're trying to get to the most uh they're trying to get to the most stable uh one that they can predict so how, you know, so it's, it's a really, it's actually, it gets very, very complicated, right? We really don't know necessarily how these, you know, we have some idea of how these, you know, stable isotopes and things, why they exist, how the atomic nuclei is set up. But again, it's one of those funny things with atomic physics, kind of the deeper you get, the more, um, like, absurd. yeah, exactly. Like the smaller you get, the weirder things get. And, and now we're getting like real small, you know? We're talking about individual like quanta, so it it, it gets a little weird. Mm -hmm. The another important point of why we would use uranium two thirty five versus two thirty eight is the thing that it decays into. So what is what does uranium two thirty five decay to? Um, I don't actually know that. I was, um, oh, you're off the show, Gabe. No, I'm just sorry. Kidding. It's your it's season. Cesium. It's thorium. It's thorium. thorium. It will. Thorium will then decay to cesium. You're correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I remember cesium, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it eventually becomes cesium. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's super funny. Yeah. It, it essentially becomes protactinium. And then from protactinium, it will eventually become, um, what's the word? Eventually it becomes, it becomes a cesium, uh, you know, eventually cesium is formed. But anyways, so and it depends on the way the reactor is set up and all that, of course. But uranium-235 undergoes alpha decay as well. So there's different types of decay modes. So there's alpha decay, which is a alpha particle or a proton. That's pretty easy to shield against. There's beta decay, which is electrons, which is uh, 
also relatively easy to shield against. And then there's gamma rays, which are almost impossible to shield against. Yeah, because that's very, just very the difficult. neutrons, right? They don't exactly. have a charge. You can't use magnets. So, um, so what will happen is, so uh, uranium-235 undergoes alpha decay to thorium, whereas 238 undergoes beta-beta decay to plutonium. And as you know, we really don't want anyone producing plutonium, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is why, because plutonium is used as a, as a weapons-grade um, weapons source uh, of nuclear uh, material. So that's also another big reason why 235 is used. Actually, the only one of the few plants in the United States that produce 238 or use 238 to produce plutonium, um, or rather one of the major plutonium sources, I guess I should say, in the world was in Washington State in the United States and has become a major uh, nuclear waste site now. It's, it's completely uh, destroyed the ecosystem there. Is is that the mountain that they have hollowed out? No, that's Yucca Mountain is um what's it? Uh Yucca Mountain is what you're thinking of, I'm sure. Yeah, they just hollowed out a mountain and they're just throwing buckets of it down there. Yeah, no, it's the it's the uh what's it? The Hanford Sound is the uh, site that I'm thinking of. The Hanford Sound um nuclear waste site. There used to be a reactor there. Anyway, so that's that's why they choose tier 38 versus two, three or what, some of the reasons. Right? There's other reasons, too, but that's some of the reasons it's it's more unstable and it's also uh, or it's more fissionable, I should say. And it also mm -hmm. decays a little bit more nicely to something we like. Um, well, depending on the year, plutonium was good or not. Right. That's that's true <laughs> as well. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we wanted it. Sometimes we didn't. Uh, that's actually another important point, though, here. Right. Is. What we're talking about in this case is what's known as nuclear fission versus say nuclear fusion. So do you want to give kind of the quick, how do you understand that difference? Um, so fission usually involves bigger elements because they, they, they split easier. Um, but fusion, as I feel like it's pretty common knowledge, you can look up in the sky, that giant sun uh, <laughs> is a giant fusion reactor. Um, but it's, the smaller the elements is actually the easier ones because they take they have less binding energy. Mm -hmm. So like like hydrogen for say one proton one electron, um, you get them moving so fast in these extreme environments that what they hit so hard that they stick and become a new element entirely because you know basic chem the number of protons you have indicates what element it is. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, one goes to two, two goes to four, etc. Um, but in this process, uh, it releases quite a bit of energy, but since it's not decaying, you don't have radioactive waste. Right. So quickly backing up here to make it, to make it a little bit more understandable for listeners who maybe, you know, haven't studied this as much as, as you have Gabe. Um, so fission, fission means we are breaking apart. So a heavy element will split into two smaller elements. And in that process, it will release some heat energy. The amount of energy released is actually what E equals MC squared uh, basically calculates. So the energy is the mass difference of the uh, elements you had before versus the elements you have after um, times the speed of light squared. In fusion, it's you are taking two light elements and you are basically smashing them together. 
Um, usually, that's the way we tend to do it, but you put them together, and in so doing, they also release a tremendous amount of energy. And like you said, fusion is kind of the pie in the sky. It's like the plan. It's the thing we have always wanted to have happen. Because it's only it, 30 years away. Because That's what they said 30 years ago, right? It's perfect. <laughs> it, um, you know, fusion will, uh, fusion will, 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 nuclear fission, which we use now, generates nuclear waste products, right? Because the stuff that you create from that splitting apart always is, it, not always, but it tends to be radioactive until eventually over time it decays to something stable. On the other hand, fusion, uh, you can take two non-radioactive elements, smack them together, make a non-radioactive product, and get energy out of the deal. It's kind of like the perfect system, you know? So that's kind of the way that that goes. So, okay. So Otto Hahn discovered that you could split uranium by shooting neutrons at it. Mm -hmm. That then leads to what? Uh, so some really smart people started experimenting around with it. Um, they figured out that you could extract energy, as we were talking about, because the fission process, um, if you have a bunch of them close together, it kind of starts a chain reaction because um, they're moving on their own. So people figured out that you could put them together into a core and use that heat energy to heat up water and then use that steam to turn a turbine, which is basically just an AC generator. Right, absolutely. So the way that the, way that the reactors kind of work is, like you explained really well, um, you have something that was, is releasing neutrons. That neutron source hits a a big bunch of uranium-235. That uranium-235 then, because it gets hit by those neutrons, will decay and release further neutrons. So in the decay process, more neutrons are generated. So that creates what's known as a chain reaction. And so the more the reaction goes, the more neutrons you actually make, the more radioactivity you create, and so the more energy you release. If that reaction isn't controlled, at the beginning, it'll just die out. There's not enough neutron flux there. So flux just means neutron kind of transport through the system. There's not enough neutron flowing through the system, so the reaction will just die on its own. Otherwise, we'd have nuclear reactors under the Earth's crust going all the time. Right, exactly. <laughs> And on the other hand, though, if you give too many neutrons, then you can create a runaway reaction. And that's where it'll just keep going until all the fuel is used up. And so you end up with like a meltdown or something. So what these engineers had to figure out essentially was how can we modulate the flux or the transport of neutrons through the reactor so that we end up with enough neutrons to make the reaction go on its own, right? And mm -hmm. reach what they called a critical mass. Now, the critical mass is actually not a bad thing. Critical mass means your reaction is outputting enough neutrons to self-sustain itself, so you don't have to use any more energy to, be, to keep it going. And it's not over critical mass, which would mean that it's gone out of control. Yeah. So it's, it's still <laughs> controllable. So in, this, in these nuclear reactors then, what they eventually figured out was you could have a, basically a big pool of water where in the water you have control rods 
of different elements. So usually these are things like say zirconium or other things. Um, and then also reaction rods, which have, uh, which actually have the uranium pellets within them. The uranium pellets are providing the neutrons, the water, the carbon, the whatever other neutron modulating things are there are helping to suck up some of those neutrons. And so you can control the amount of neutron that you're fluxing through your reactor. And then you also have the ability to move those rods up and down so you can turn, you can change basically how much energy you're getting out of your reactor. The general idea. So you can, you can control the amount of, but again, it's just like with say a fire reactor. In a fire reactor, it's the reaction of the fire with the, or the wood with the oxygen that's creating the burn, right? The heat energy that you're getting out of it. To control that, you could add more uh, logs, you could add more wood, which would increase the output, or you can add some non-burning stuff. You could put sand or something to lower the heat output very quickly. You can think the same thing is sort of happening in a nuclear reactor, where the control rods can be used to uh, turn, you know, to control the rate of the reaction itself. So do you want to put sand on it or do you want to put uh, more wood into the reaction? Right. Um, mm -hmm. That's the way the control rods operate. So that is the basics of how a nuclear reactor works. But over time, we've kind of figured out a bunch of different ways to make reactors. So give us some of these, give us some of the basics of, on these reactors themselves. So the, the most common type is uh, the pressurized water reactor. <laughs> Basically, like I said earlier, they use, um, they have water in a pressurized system that they use uh, from the heat from the fission reaction. Uh, but they actually keep that in a separate uh, like system because it's mm -hmm. irradiated from the neutrons. Uh, so they run that through a pipe and then they have another set of pipes closer to that, which boils that water. And then they use that steam to run through a high pressure turbine, which generates electricity. Right, right. So, yeah. So, the, and again, kind of the basics here of all of these reactors are the nuclear reaction creates heat. That heat is then uh, basically sucked up by some water that flows near the reactor, but doesn't touch it so that it doesn't get irradiated. And then that water turns into steam. The steam then powers a turbine, which converts the steam energy into mechanical energy that then gets converted into electrical energy and goes to your homes. And then that water that went through the turbine condenses back into water and then gets pumped back around the reaction or pumped back around the reactor to go through the system again. So that's the, that's the, that's the pressurized water reactors. Another type of reactor is the liquid metal fast breeder reactor right now. That's, that's more of a, what's the word? That's more of a modern solution to this, correct? Mm -hmm. I think they're really interesting. Actually, it's kind of creative. Um, so, so you don't have to worry about pressurized water. So they use uh, sodium around it. So the, it's kind of like a big bowl where they have the molten sodium in the middle part um it, it's like a two-layer bowl kind of like a, the bottom part of a nesting doll hmm. uh so in the, the innermost one you have the molten sodium that's been melted from the heat and then on the outside you have the cooler sodium it's still liquid though i believe uh, and they use that exchange of heat to do the same thing essentially but um and this one's different because instead of trying to moderate 
the uh, well, they, they don't have to moderate the reaction as much because they, they want it to get hot faster. Hmm. Um, so instead of having the neutrons go at a certain rate to keep themselves sustainable, um, they actually want them to go faster and create hit harder more often um, to create more heat, essentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this process, you can actually create more uranium as a byproduct of fission, which is why it's called a breeder reactor because it breeds fuel. So there's a it has a higher potential of creating usable side products. Right. It's not like these other reactors where the stuff you make is just garbage afterwards. It has to get, you know, like you said, kind of put under a mountaintop someplace or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the kind of reactor used at Chernobyl is what's known as an RMBK. Better high power channel reactor. Tell us a little bit about that type of reactor. So. Um, the setup's kind of like a big cylinder. Uh, it has uh, so like if you were to draw a circle on graph paper, um, each square basically has some kind of either control rod, uh, fuel rod, some or even or some kind of like you know moderator of some kind. So it, it makes the use of most of its space. Um, and it's and set up in like a grid. So I honestly, to me, it kind of looks like a like a Minecraft circle where you have all the different. <laughs> you are um, correct. That is exactly yeah. what it looks like. It's, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they have, but they have like the starter ones they are kind of, it's set up in a square formation to, to start the chain reaction most efficiently with the space that it has. And then it has the normal fuel rods. And then in between those are the control rods. So to kind of like maximize the, the surface area in case of an event so the, mm-hmm. that doesn't believe that's called a scram reaction. Yeah. I don't know what the acronym stands for, but something in, the case in of, something in Russian. <laughs> I'm prob- sure. Yeah, yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the way, the way that these ones work, so these still have, they still have water inside of the reaction chamber itself. That's also helping to modulate the, uh, what's the word helping to modulate the reaction occurring inside. Um, and then that, that water gets hot and then that heat is transferred again to, uh, you know, fresh water, just like it was, it is in a pressurized water reactor. The big difference here, like Gabe saying is the modulation, the, 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 you know, these reactors can start up, um, a little bit faster than the other kind. Um, and also, you know, it, it just allows you to, it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of like the Russians had their own thing, right? These also produce plutonium, though, which also was important to the Russians at this time period during the Cold War. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and also I believe they were. It was kind of like, um, like with the two three day, they were also they were they were using it for power, but they were also trying to pump out as much plutonium as they could, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah, that was that was another one of their big, big, big things. So. This this is the kind of reactor that was used at Chernobyl. Now, if anyone if anyone has seen the Chernobyl, um, what's the word? If anyone has seen the Chernobyl show on HBO, it was super good. 
right? So go watch it. It's great. It's super, super good. The, I, I need to watch it. Oh, Gabe, you're killing me here, man. I, I should have because we're talking about it, but it's so good. So <laughs> um, essentially, this was known as a what's the word? This was known as a, a graphite moderated plutonium uh, reactor because it produced plutonium. Now, the way that it was set up again, so you had on either side of the uh, giant kind of control circle where the reaction occurred, you had a steam, um, you had basically a separator on either side where water would flow in, it would go through a pump, that pump would then push it through the, uh, the reaction chamber itself, where there was graphite moderators, um, uh, what's the word, graphite moderators, there were the control rods themselves, the fuel rods, those sorts of things that would then produce steam. The steam would then come up um, and be separated out. And then that steam would be used to pump a turbine, which would then recycle it over to the water side. Right. And then that would get pumped in back to the fuel rods and all that stuff. So that was the general way that this reactor worked during the Chernobyl event. What, what they discovered in this reactor type was that if there was a, if there was ever a power loss, Right. Or something happened where the pumps that were pushing the water through the reactor went offline. There was about a one minute period between when the pumps went offline and when secondary power came back on, which would allow the pumps to go back to full capacity. So during that time period, there was it was very unsafe because, again, the flow of water is one of the most important parts of modulating the actual flux of neutrons going on here. So if you lose water pumping, you could very quickly uh, overheat your reactor and lead to a meltdown. And that was kind of the fear that they were they were working against here. Now, they had developed a couple of different experiments to try and figure out, well, could we uh, could we find a way to make this design flaw, you know, not an issue anymore? And so the thing that they proposed was essentially in that minute between when the fuel pumps go offline and the diesel engines come back. What if we rerouted the energy that the reactor itself was producing to power our pumps? Does that make sense? Good idea on paper. Good idea on paper, right? So in other words, we're powering a nuclear reactor to make energy. If we lose power, well, why don't we just recycle the power that we're making back over to our pumps? That way we can shut the reactor down in this event. Right. So we'll have enough water to shut down safely if, if this ever happened. They've now they had they, they thought of this basically uh, before the reactor, you know, once the reactor was installed, they basically figured out, oh, this is a design flaw. What if we tried this? And they had tried it multiple times before the fateful night of the actual Chernobyl disaster itself. Another issue with RBMK reactors is what's known as a positive void coefficient. Now, what that means is if the if if ever there was a case where the reactor generated bubbles of steam, right? So if the water got too hot and started nucleating and boiling inside of this kind of reactor, what they found was that uh, your energy would actually uh, go up. So as temperature increased, uh, your actual reactor output of energy also increased. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The chain reaction. Right. Which could then lead to a chain reaction. Yeah. 
What well, weren't they testing it when the actual disaster happened? Yeah, they, they were. were. Doing... Well, that was the thing. They were they were running a test during the yes. Um, they were they were actually uh, what's the word? They were actually running one of these safety tests when this occurred. Now another huge problem that the Russian government knew about, but the Chernobyl engineers did not know about was that those control rods they had on the very bottom had a graphite tip. And so in other, basically if you ever have a nuclear disaster about to occur, your reaction is going run away and you need to shut it down quickly. What you do in most cases is you flood the chamber with uh, control rods, not flood the chamber, but you, you basically stick all of the control rods into the chamber. And so in a Russian reactor, this was the emergency button to make that happen was known as AZ-5 or AZ-5 for our Americans. The big red button. The big red button. So you were supposed to push that when there was ever an emergency. All of the control rods would lower, and then that would instantaneously kill the reaction, or nearly instantaneously, because all of the neutrons being fluxed would be taken up by the control rods. However... In this kind of RMBK or RBMK reactor, what the Russian government had discovered at another facility was that when you pushed AZ-5 and those control rods went back down, in the case where you had a positive void coefficient, the graphite tip actually caused a huge spike in radiation levels. Because... Those gra that graphite tip actually helps the neutrons flux more quickly. So was the graphite itself undergoing like its own version of fission because it was so such an extreme? No, no, no. But it was it was essentially essentially. So the the reason for this was that the idea was that as you remove the tips, as you remove the control rods, that graphite bottom, the tip on there would help to speed the reaction up because that's why you were removing the control rods, right? was to get the reaction to move forward. Oh, but it didn't only worked one way. Right. But it only worked one way or it only, you know, so they knew that this would happen, but they were hoping, um, I guess they were hoping that it wouldn't, um, what's the word that it, you know, wouldn't happen. <laughs> they made, yeah, they basically thought, um, so basically the, the graphite control rods actually increased the fission rate. That was the whole point of the graphite rods there. So the other stuff on the control rods was used to control the rate, but that tip was designed in a way to kind of be like an extra push for the reaction to move forward. So, and what they had found was usually that spike was pretty low, but in this case, you know, they thought that the, all of those things coming together, the, the, that the reaction would lose power or that the, the pumps would lose power so water would stop, stop flowing successfully, that all of the other safety controls were turned off, which was done at the Chernobyl test that night, and that um, the reaction would start to go run away. They thought all of those things together would never happen because it would, it would be such a mismanagement of the reaction itself that no engineer would possibly ever try to do it. But the, what is that Murphy's law? Yeah, exactly. But the right, the beauty though of 
Uh, first off, the beauty of any engineering plant is, yeah, Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? That's why today when we design chemical plants with safety in mind, we do so without, you know, we make it so that humans can't do anything, right? It, like, they, you know, a human would have to make a very specific decision to be unsafe. And that usually, hopefully, doesn't happen. You know, I'll give you an example, right? In Chernobyl, um... So, so for example, in another kind of reactor, even on, not say like a, a nuclear reactor, but in the United States, if you have a steam, if you have a steam line or a water line, that's going to cool a reactor or something, um, on that, on that valve. So there's usually a valve that can control the flow rate of the water. There's usually a lock on that valve. It's usually locked open in place specifically so that stuff like what happened at Chernobyl where some, you know, manager who doesn't know anything is like, no, we're doing this tonight. Uh, that kind of stuff won't happen. All right. So now let's get into the actual event itself. The test plan essentially was we were going to, they were going to have the reactor run at a low power level. So between around 700 megawatts and 800 megawatts. Now, for some, um, for some general kind of, you know, for you to know essentially how this was running previously, um, the general power output of the Chernobyl plant was uh, meant to be around, around like 12, you know, around like 4,000 megawatts was each, uh, each reactor. And so the whole station was, you know, four times six reactors. Right, so 24,000 megawatts. So again, they're talking about going from 4,000 megawatts output max to about 700. They then shut down, um, or then they, they turned up the steam generators, the turbine generators, up to full speed. Once that happened, they would shut off the steam supply. So just like in this testing idea where, okay, the power outage goes out to the, to the steam pumps, and that happens. They would then record how well the turbines generated energy at that point to see if it could be used as a bridging power source for the coolant pumps. And so after that happened, when the emergency generators came back online and achieved their regular, you know, their expected operating speed, the turbine would then be allowed to continue to shut down and then they would shut off, you know, they would basically again start up that part of the reactor again. That was the kind of idea. This was to test again for like a minute of offline reactor time. They are so the day before the reaction or the day before the event, um, which was 25th, April, 1986, they or rather 26th April was when the reaction occurred or the, the disaster occurred. The 25th was the day that they actually figured out the reaction conditions they wanted to do. Um, their day, the day shift workers who were in the control room were given all of this stuff in advance. They were told, this is how we're going to run the test. This is what you do. This is what you do in the case of an emergency, whatever, right? They had all of that already planned out. So they started already, and they, they also, in fact, had a specialist team of electrical engineers there to run the test itself to actually get that, you know, get the information from the turbines themselves to see, can this be a bridging energy source? Um, the reduction in the output of the power unit started at about 1 a.m. on the 25th of April, and they had reached 50% of their regular operating output, which was 3,200 megawatts uh, at that time period. 
um, at the beginning of the day shift. Now, what then happened is another power station in Kiev called and said, hey, our Kiev plant is having trouble meeting the energy demand for our, our people. Can Chernobyl stay online a little bit longer to meet peak at nighttime demand? And so the Chernobyl plant director said, fine, we can do that. We'll postpone our test. However, instead of postponing the test for another day, when the uh, day shift people could do it again, they decided we'll just delay it a couple hours. This meant that everybody on the team that did this test was completely unprepared. They didn't know about the, I mean, they knew about the test, but they didn't know how to run it. They had never run a test like this before. They just, they came into work and they were like, Hey, you're going to do this super dangerous thing and good luck. This meant also that other preparations that they needed to run to make sure that all safety was, you know, all the possible safety precautions were in place never happened here. So the, for instance, the emergency core cooling system, um, which essentially is a way to uh, supply water to the core if they ran out of loss of coolant or, you know, if the water coolant uh, went away, um, that was disabled because they were going to run this test. So they were even disabling like passive testing or passive safety measures that could have saved them in this case. Murphy's law. Totally terrible, right? Yeah, that's. So at nighttime, when the night shift came in, the Kiev controller called back and said, okay, you're fine. Do the test. All right, fine. So they, they started running the test, even though they weren't prepared. They decreased the power another 50% during the changeover between shifts. So when they came in now, they were running at very, very low energy. They didn't really understand what was going on necessarily, but they knew they were going to do this test. All right. Because of how long that low, that slowdown in the reaction actually occurred too, they were starting to, uh, they were starting to accumulate a very dangerous, dangerous in this case, fission byproduct, xenon-135, which further acts as a neutron absorber. So new, the xenon-135 meant that even though they were pumping a lot of neutrons through the reactor, the xenon was actually taking it in by itself. Now, normally, what would happen is that the xenon would be burned away. So it would be created, but then it would be destroyed. So there was no, what's the word? Usually they didn't see this. So when this occurred, and even though they were trying to increase energy, it didn't happen, the controllers were very concerned. They had no idea what was going on because they'd never seen this before. So as they are now running this test, they're trying to lower the energy. It lowers past the point that they expected. So they wanted it to be at around 700 megawatts. It goes down to 500 megawatts. Then suddenly it drops to 30 megawatts. That's the xenon part. That is the, that we think that is the xenon part. We don't know exactly why. However, that is the idea. Now that it was only running out 30 megawatts, the test has completely gone out of control. Right? 
They don't know what's going on. So they decide, well, we have to get it back up because people are going to start losing power. Let's raise the power as quickly as we can by removing the control rods by hand. Manually, they remove the control rods. So they actually have people go down to the reactor and manually remove the control rods. So now the computer can't even control the control rods anymore. I would have quit as soon as they asked me to do that. <laughs> that now means that they started to they started to remove the control rods and then they so that now they've gone from 50 megawatts or around 30 megawatts to now 200 megawatts because they've removed these control rods. It's still low because there is extra xenon in the reactor itself. Now that this happens, control control systems start going off, right? There's sirens going off. There's stuff about, you know, your neutron flux isn't stable. Your temperature is going all over the place. Things are going wrong here, right? So alarms are going off in the control room itself. So they don't really know what's going on, but they just ignore them, <laughs> right? Because they're like, well, we're doing a test. We don't know if this will happen or not. We're just going to do this, right? So once they reach a stable 200 megawatts, they decide we're going to keep going with this experiment, right? We've already messed up enough. Let's do this experiment. So they increase, they, they add actually extra water to the reactor. So that increases the water. And then that increase of coolant water leads to an increase in temperature that's going to the reactor core. Because they're flowing water so quickly that the cooling water isn't given enough time to cool off essentially. So in other words, they're flowing water so quickly past this hot stuff. So normally what'll happen, let's say is you're flowing water at say, you know, a leisurely pace or not leisurely, but you're giving the water enough time to go through the reactor where it's being heated up to then go through a turbine and then let it cool down by going through the turbine to then be pumped back through at about room temperature, right? A way to think about this is, I don't know, imagine you're using an ice pack, right? To cool off your head during a hot day or something. If you suddenly decrease the amount of time you let the ice pack sit in the freezer, eventually that ice pack is going to reach a higher average temperature. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. All right. So now they're actually pumping pretty hot water back into the reactor. So they're no longer cooling this reaction at all either. That leads to the water starting to boil. And so now the positive void coefficient comes into play. The water starts to boil. It then leads to, um, what's the word? It then leads to this positive void coefficient, meaning that the energy will spike further and they don't know what's going on. And then they will begin the emergency shutdown of the reactor. But those graphite tips just yes. made it worse. So now they put the they put the AZ5 button. The graphite tips are inserted with the rest of the control rod. Except for the ones that were manually removed. I was going to ask, did they have to put them back in? <laughs> right. Um, that actually does. So actually, no. So those ones, the AZ5 button does make those ones go in as well. It's like a complete, like, you know, it's a complete uh, shutdown button. Mm -hmm. However, 
That then causes the reaction again to spike very, very quickly. So, um, this means that there's a tremendous power spike. So within three seconds of them adding the control rods, the reactor output rose to 530 uh, megawatts. Then it suddenly spikes to over 30,000 megawatts. So 10 times normal operating output. That's insane. They don't know what's going on, right? They're not really sure what's happening there. And then there is an explosion. Was that from the just the extreme heat or was it um, like the steam? So we actually don't know. The first the first re the first explosion. So there's a couple of possibilities. The first possibility that is kind of the accepted one in the um, in all of the reports detailing what happened, like all the government reports, is that it was a steam explosion. So all of that, all of that steam that they generated inside the reactor now, because as the water, so the reaction goes out of control, it's generating too much heat and the water all boils. Just like if you boiled, you know, just like if you boiled water in like a bottle or something um, and then, you know, kept it closed, eventually that bottle will pop from the pressure of the steam. That's essentially what they think happened. It, it caused a pop, right? <clears throat> That's not necessarily known though it could also have been due to um what's the word that first explosion happened basically um what's the word that basically uh, destroyed the fuel channels okay so that that first explosion didn't pop open the whole reactor what it did though is it opened up the internal reactor to the outside water so now they have no cooling at all. Now there's no more pressure at all for the water to flow, right? Because the pipes, the pipes have been damaged and now they're just leaking back and forth into each other. Then what happens is the second explosion. This is the one that, this is the one that caused the entire, you know, the entire reactor to pop open, uh, shooting graphite and other radioactive material out into the atmosphere. Yeah, I saw the pictures. It was pretty gnarly. Yeah. So that explosion, we don't really know what happened there. Um, some people believe that it was due to um, it was just due, it was essentially like a small nuclear reaction, like a small nuclear explosion that there was so much energy. The reaction went so out of control that it caused, um, you know, it, it caused a sudden, sudden increase in pressure, which then popped everything open. Other people say that it was just another steam explosion, but a more powerful one. Other people have uh, what's called the nuclear fizzle hypothesis, um, which is that essentially, uh, what's the what's the word? It essentially made uh, it, it just again made another kind of explosion, right? It's a little it's a little bit complicated to explain exactly what's going on there, but essentially it's like the explosion of a nuclear weapon. Yeah, I I understand a little bit. So, um, in other words, what happens is that those, the two pieces of material, like subcritical material, so material not going to fizzle, not going to fission normally, um, get so hot and, and so, you know, they're moving so quickly that when they hit each other, it creates an explosion, right? So that was another hypothesis here that the, the, the graphite rods and the, the, the steam explosion caused these rods to you know, move so quickly that then it caused a actual kind of weapons grade explosion. Uh, 
whatever the case was, uh, things were really bad now. There is there is radioactivity shooting out. One person at the one person at the uh, site, uh, a worker actually at the plant who is still uh, or is still alive, survived the explosion itself. Um, talked about going outside and looking up and seeing a basically like a blue, uh, a beautiful blue beam of light shooting up into the sky, which was caused by the air being ionized by the radioactivity coming from inside the reactor. Um, it's, it's wild. And so what happened afterwards was there was a fire. So they actually used, they weren't supposed to use basically like asphalt on the roof in case there was a fire or an explosion. They did. So the bitumen that was on top of the roof uh, burned causing further problems. So there was a fire that was now going on. They were leaking extreme amounts of radioactivity into the environment. Um, the reaction basically, uh, the self-sustaining reaction or the buildup of the reaction ended. It was no longer a chain reaction. However, it essentially continued to go on, um, you know, indefinitely. It was still producing heat. It was still having neutrons flux through and everything else. It was, uh, it was crazy. How long did it take for the whole, basically, pool of nuclear fission to cool down to a point where they could go in and clean it up? So they were able to start... Um, they were basically able to start doing cleanup uh, relatively quickly, actually, which is pretty interesting, right? So if you watch the Chernobyl documentary, they go into that in, in really great detail, actually. We're probably not going to get to go over it in super high detail here. Um, however, the... Uh, what's the word? Uh, the first plan, you know, they had a bunch of different plans. You know, we're going we're gonna to put sand on top of the reaction to kind of quench the fire, but then they discovered, well, actually, if we put sand on top, it'll just make things go hotter inside. It just is turns the heat. into glass. Exactly, right? They'll just make a glass <laughs> container that'll then, you know, further melt and further heat up things and make this reaction worse. Um, they eventually built a, a giant concrete dome over the reactor. Um, and actually, the, the Chernobyl plant was in operation um, until the 90s. It actually still created energy until like 92, I want to say. Um, which is kind of nuts, right? Um, it's just absolutely crazy. So, uh, reactor one was decommissioned November, 1996. Um, and then in 2000, reactor three was turned off, which finally shut down the entire site. Um, the explosion itself happening at, uh, reactor four, I want to say. Yeah. So, um, like this, you know, they they put they cleaned it up relatively quickly. However, the damage is I mean, the damage is still ongoing. Um, we don't know exactly. We, we It's hard to measure the actual casualty amount. There were a hundred, you know, around a hundred or less deaths due to exposure to radiation specifically. So of, you know, in the, in the documentary they talk about, or in the show, they talk about all the firemen, right? So about 28 of those um, died due to acute radiation syndrome. Um, however, so there, there are, there are some estimates of less than a hundred people dying due to the Chernobyl disaster. And there are some that say it's around 16,000. So it's a very wide range. It depends on what you consider to be a fatality. Someone dying of thyroid cancer, um, 
in the aftermath of something like this, do you count that? You know, were they a smoker? Um, were they exposed to other radioactivities in their workplace or, you know, their home life or whatever? It's really hard to measure those things. But essentially, you know, uh, they had to create a giant exclusion zone. Um, there are still people living near Chernobyl, though. There's about, I think, 200 people that decided not to move out and not be evacuated. And they some of them still live there. Um, there are animals now. Uh, nature has essentially reclaimed the area. However, um, in the aftermath of this explosion, it was really important to control set, you know, so the threat of a nuclear explosion is not just in the initial damage. The threat is in the radioactivity that is then spread through the environment. And so the way that that radioactivity spreads essentially is um, an animal or a person or something is exposed to a radioactive isotope, either through the air, as dust, um, as contamination with food, as contamination with water. They take it into their body somehow. The body will then um, use that. You know, the body doesn't differentiate between a radioactive and a non-radioactive isotope of an element it needs. So if you take in, you know, radioactive iodine versus regular iodine, your body will still use it in the same way. The same thing is true for other waste products, things like, say, strontium and cesium. Cesium in the body acts like potassium and strontium acts like calcium. So if you ingested strontium that was radioactive, your body would incorporate it into the bones, some percentage of it. So essentially what happens is you take that in and then your body has this radioactive isotope within it. And so you become a further vector for other people. And, superhero, right? And well, yeah, superhero, right? Yeah, man, <laughs> man with very, very brittle bones, you know, um, like glass, right? That L M Night Shyamalan movie. Um, yeah, it it basically becomes a very, it just becomes a, a consistent and kind of all encompassing risk factor for you. Your risk for cancer goes up like crazy. Um, you know, everything, just damage to your cells in general, right? That's, it's just not a good thing. So. In some ways, the cleanup was. In some ways, the cleanup was better than we ever should have hoped for, thanks to the work of of scientists on the ground who went and actually, you know, were part of that cleanup effort. People that weren't afraid of the Soviet Union to say, "Hey, we need to do something," you know, and that's what that documentary does a really good job of showing is those, you know, some of those scientists and some of those people who really were, um, what's the word, really were brave in doing that. Yeah, I, I was looking at um some pictures of like animals that got mutated. Um, it was like a, it was the only reason you could tell it was a pig is because it had a pig's head, but the body was pretty much just silly putty. It was honestly kind of made me sick. Yeah, it's the 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 images of the initial uh, the initial disaster or the effect on people are not for the squeamish. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with that, uh, that's the end of this episode. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gabe, for coming on. It was a lot of fun, man. You are uh, you are very knowledgeable in this stuff. I'm 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 super happy you came on the show. Yeah, thanks for letting me come on. Oh, no problem. We'll definitely have to come have you come back on sometime soon. And listeners, if you would like to be part of a listener sode, please reach out to us. We would love to have you come on, and uh, we'll talk we'll talk again soon, Gabe. All right, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah, and I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.